Welcome to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellotta from singleinthecity.ca on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hello, everyone. Thanks for spending your Sunday evening with me. You're listening to the Dating and Relationship Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I'm Laura Bellotta, dating and relationship expert and owner of singleinthecity.ca with my co-host, TV personality and philanthropist, Joan Kelly Walker. How's it going? Great. How are you doing? Well, pretty good. It's always fun to do this show with you, though, Laura. I know. You know, like, I don't know if you felt it, but this week I definitely felt the effects of what's going on in the world, you know, with all the political unrest happening next door, you know, alongside this COVID and all the other uncertainties. How about yourself? You you feeling yeah. okay? Well, I just feel like we're all starting to hunker down again and, you know, a big shift in the weather lately, too. It's kind of helping with that, but I, I kind of feel like that's what we have to do right now. So I'm just trying to make the best of it and be efficient inside my house. Well, at least we have this show. Yes, thank goodness. We're helping lots of people, so let's get started. So as you all know, this show is about exploring the different aspects of relationships and the factors that affect them. Tonight's guest is is no stranger to family and relationship issues and how to overcome them. We are joined by Thomas Gagliano, Master of Social Work, an expert in family dynamic issues. He's also the best-selling author of The Problem Was Me. Uh, Thomas specializes in childhood experiences and how these experiences Experiences shape our worldview as we grow. He also provides family-focused individual and couples therapy, helping people to mend broken relationships. Tonight, we're going to be exploring how our childhood affects us as we grow older, how what we experience in our youth can set the foundation for things like infidelity and addiction, how to deal with relationship issues and steps for moving forward. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thomas, how are you? All the way from Joyzy. Sorry, I shouldn't say it like that. Joyzy. Yeah, New Joyzy. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. (laughs) I love the accent. Originally from Brooklyn. Not that any of your uh, listeners can tell, but that's where I'm from. Thank you. All right. Uh, So let's start with a little background. You work with families and couples to help them understand issues that they're facing and ways to cope. Now, you said that your expertise comes from the abuses that you experienced as a child and, and how you overcame these. How do you use these experiences to help those uh, work on these issues? Well, the very first thing I want everybody to hear is that any child out there, anyone, I don't care what's the diversity, rich, poor, what religion, any child that feels like they don't matter to their parents, they don't stop loving their parents. They stop loving themselves. So what I talk about is how childhood messages, those early messages that get ingrained in our core beliefs will impact the intimacy we have or don't have, our parenting skills, the careers we choose, the dates we go on, what we expect and don't expect from people, our boundaries. They infiltrate everything. So what I do with couples, I I deal with couples, I deal with parents, I deal with uh, addicts. We explore those childhood messages. What are the messages that we want to hold on to that have helped us in our lives? And which messages have sabotaged the happiness we have? Mm-hmm. And, and when it comes to blaming, though, our parents for the hole that, you know, we might find ourselves in today, I think that we also have to take a look at the fact that, that 
they've been trying to climb out of this hole themselves their entire lives, or they didn't realize that they were in a hole. Like I look at my parents, right, and the way they brought me up, and I don't think that they realized what they were doing at the time. And we have to realize, too, that the abuser was once the abused and that the neglector was once the neglected. So I think if we can come to a place of realization and forgiveness that we can break the cycle so that our children don't have to go through what we went through. Absolutely. I I think it's it's a great point. You know, we have to understand that our parents didn't try to hurt us. Of course not. Um, that wasn't what their goal was, but they can only give us what they had inside themselves. We have to remember that too. And if they suffered from self-esteem issues, anger issues, addictions, and codependency, many other things, they don't try to put that in our diaper. My other book is called Don't Put Your Crap in Your Kid's Diaper. Excuse my expression. But (laughs) if they don't work on their issues they will hand them down to us unknowingly and not meaning to. So it's very important to understand that this is not a blame game. It's not blaming our parents, but certainly we want to explore what messages have helped us in life and what messages has sabotaged our happiness. Thomas, it, does it ever happen that, you know, the, the child is sort of misreading the situation or misinterpreting it because they are a child? So is that part of what you do is explore those lines that get crossed? No, I don't, because I don't think a child fails their parents. I don't. I think parents can fail their children. But that's but what I, I mean. If, if, the parent their, me, if the parent means well and they're not, you know, they're doing their best, um, I, don't, I don't know. Like, it's a, it's a hard point, I think, to make. If, if the parent's doing their best and the child is – you know, not quite getting what they need from the parent. I guess that is maybe the parent failing. Well, let me let me explain to you what, what you're saying, and, and let me extrapolate a little bit. There are parents out there that think that their best is always protecting their children, always keeping their children from danger, all dangers, always trying to give their children that support. Now, that is their best. But I will tell you, many parents come to me, that will tell me that I was always there for my kid. I always was there in school. I was protecting him. But children have to learn to face the world with integrity and self-esteem on their own. They need to figure out how to get out of their own messes. That doesn't mean the parent doesn't support them. But if we're constantly protecting our children from learning world experiences and life experiences, that child will get out in the world and not know what to do, incapable of knowing how to cope with life. So we need to develop in our children coping mechanisms so that when they get out in the world, they're not overwhelmed. So many times parents will come to me with the same question. I did everything for my children. And I say, that's the problem. You didn't let them experience life on life's terms. You didn't learn, let them learn coping mechanisms, how to get out of their own messes. And what happens in situations like that, the child gets mad at the parent that did everything for them because they're not ready to face the world. They get overwhelmed. They don't know how to regulate their discomfort. They don't know how to do that. And they get absolutely devoured by the world and life on life's terms. So I hear what you're saying, but this is what I talk about. It's important for parents, even the best of parents that are trying to do everything right for their children. 
it's very important for them to understand that there is a gray area where you have to let your child learn to deal with life, get out of their own messes with your support. And if you don't do that, you may think you're doing the very best for your child, but not realizing how you're not creating a child that's ready to face the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. thanks for clarifying that. I think that was the point I was trying to make. But, you know, as I'm looking at it, like, from a parent of, like, you know, adult kids now, and I'm thinking, okay, did I do that? Like, you really, as a parent, you wouldn't ever do anything to do a disservice to your child. No. But I'm thinking, not. did I do that? Did I, did I hover? Did I helicopter? Like, you know, it's, um, exactly. but then I look at it just from an intellectual point of view, and it's like, of course, obviously, that makes all the sense in the world. Right. And you know what? There's a long long journey from intellect to emotions, a long journey. When I wrote my second book, uh, which was Don't Put Your Crap in Your Kid's Diaper, I realized that so many parents really do their best. They don't unknowingly understand how they put their fears in their child's diaper or the expectations. I see on the ball fields kids crying because they're not reaching their parents' expectations. I see many times that children are so afraid to take a step into the world because their parents told them what a terrifying world this is. Nobody means to do this stuff. No parent wants to hurt their child. But we don't, we're not aware of the uh, verbal and nonverbal messages that we're instilling in them that will come back to hurt them as they get older. So, Thomas, how do we begin to uncover these childhood messages so we can understand how much of an impact that they have on us today? I mean, where do we even start? I mean, there's got to be some soul-searching, some real digging. It starts with self-awareness. I have to know what messages were helpful and what weren't. No, if I have – if I'm in pain and I'm working on my foot and it's my shoulder that's the problem, I ain't getting anywhere. So I got to be aware of what messages I receive that are helpful and what are distorted. And then we go to perfect, you know, this is what my clients come to me with couples, individuals, they come to me with this stuff and we explore, we build self-awareness. The most important thing we could do for our children, what are the most important things we need as we needed as children is to know that our feelings matter. A child who doesn't feel their feelings matter feels like they don't matter. It's very important to hear that. I needed to know as a child that how I felt mattered. It doesn't mean my parents have to agree with me or acquiesce to what I say. But if I'm validated that my feelings matter, I matter. Very important for me as a child, which I didn't get, and for other children with my children to know that their feelings do matter. Feelings are not right and wrong. But what if you don't have any recollection of if, if you felt that way? Like, I don't remember as a child feeling, did I matter here? Did I not matter? You know, I don't, I don't think I had the best upbringing in the world. I don't think I had the most horrible upbringing. But I don't remember certain things. Like, is that normal? Is that something that... Maybe- no, it, it, it's, you would have known. Look, our, well, we're children. We're egocentric. Okay, all children are egocentric. The world revolves around them. Their brain hasn't developed. When my father was out drinking and never came home at night, I never said to myself, gee, my father's an alcoholic. At 10 years old, I said, what's the matter with me? Something must be wrong with me that my father doesn't want to be with me. 
Egocentricity is very important to understand. So if a person doesn't feel like their feelings matter, what happens is their brain disassociates that. The brain protects the child. The brain says to the child, don't think about feelings. It's painful. So disassociate those feelings. See, so this is, I'm not saying your childhood or anybody else is listening to this. I'm saying my, my childhood, I disassociated feelings early on because I didn't feel I mattered. And I didn't feel I mattered because I felt that I wasn't important as I go from the beginning to those caregivers or parents that I had early on. We need to take a break, Thomas, but we're going to come back to this. We're going to continue our conversation on how childhood messages affect us as adults and particularly our relationships. You're listening to The Dating and Relationship Show. Don't go anywhere. Now back to The Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellotta from singleinthecity.ca on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Hey guys, you're tuned into the Dating and Relationship Show on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. I'm your host, Laura Bellotta, with TV personality and philanthropist in studio with me here, Joan Kelly Walker. And tonight we're joined by Thomas Gagliano. He's Master of Social Work. He's an expert in family dynamic issues. He's a best-selling author of The Problem Was Me. And Thomas specializes in childhood experiences and how they shape our worldview as we grow. Um, he also provides family-focused individual and couples therapy, helping people to mend broken relationships. We're going to continue our conversation. Uh, it's a very interesting one. I tell my clients that have had relationships where they were dissolved or they broke up, whatever. I tell them to do an inventory. Write down what makes you happy in the relationship. What makes you sad? What were the red, uh, the, 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 the red flags that you didn't pay attention to? Get to know yourself better. Because I will tell every one of your, 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 your listeners, there is no more important relationship they have than the one they have with themselves. That's the most important relationship. Work on that. I tell all my clients the most important relationship they have is not with their boyfriend, girlfriend. It's not with their wife, spouse. It's with themselves. Work on that relationship. And what does that mean? I tell my clients to do an inventory. And that inventory is what makes you happy in the relationship? What makes you sad? What were the red flags that you missed in your relationship? Because if you don't build that relationship with yourself, which is the most important relationship you have, you'll find the same thing over and over again and say to yourself, how did this happen? So this is what I do with my clients who have had bad relationships, who are dating and can't find the right person. It's because they're not really understanding the relationship they have with themselves more. To work mm -hmm. on that relationship, that's the important piece. I totally agree with that. Yeah, you have to work on the relationship with yourself. You have to actually enjoy spending time with yourself. You have to like yourself. You have to learn about yourself, yep. know who you are. No. Nobody's going to fix you. Nobody. You have to yeah. fix yourself first, and then you'll be better prepared to make the better choices in life. But if you're broken inside, as I was, as I was, I sabotaged all the relationships in my life, and I didn't understand why. It's because I didn't love myself. Nobody was going to love me if I didn't love myself. So I had to get good on what I needed, what I wanted in a relationship. And that was the key for me to find happiness. Now, we can attribute things uh, that many of us experience in some way, like infidelity, like addiction. 
to these childhood experiences. So how can we begin to recognize where these issues began in ourselves or our partners and then grow from them? It's all about sabotaging intimacy. If I, I can't, let me, let me bring it to me a little bit. I came from a childhood where I was abused in a lot of different ways, unfortunately, sexually, physically abusive. So what happened in my version of intimacy is when somebody got close, I became fragmented like many addicts, like all addicts do. I was two, two people. One, I showed the world and there was a part of me I would not let anybody see. I thought it was a horrible, despicable part of me. So whenever anybody ever got close, I sabotaged that, not realizing that I was sabotaging that. So what happens is I have to bring that inside out. We're trusting people, therapists, groups that I run, where I really could begin to believe that, you know what, I'm not a, a bad person that deserves to be punished. I'm a discouraged person that just needed the help of other people. So what happens in infidelity, there's two pieces. One is, you know, some of us just find the wrong person, and that happens. If you want to get a divorce and, and, and go with the person that you're with, that's fine. It happens. But do it the right way. Walk out the front door. Don't walk out the back door and cheat and hurt everyone around you, including your children, because you're betraying your children. And then there's the infidelity of addiction, where anytime anybody gets close, I act out in ways to sabotage that. In that spectrum, those people need to get help because they're broken. And they need to be able to with the help of a professional, understand, why do I sabotage my happiness? What is it about me that when people get close, I find ways to push them away? Because you feel like you're not deserving of love. Uh, Excuse me? Because you feel like you're not deserving of love. Right. Right. Some people that commit infidelity are addicted to the, um, to the fantasy of who they're with, not the reality of who they're with. You, you know, when you're, when you're in intimacy, emotional intimacy with somebody, you go through the ups and downs. You go through the struggles, the financial struggles, the children's struggles. It's part of what life is. So when people can't, and addicts can't regulate their discomfort, they can't regulate their conflict, they've learned early on that they need to disassociate that and act it out instead of talk about that. Instead of talk about their discomfort, they don't trust people. Addicts do not trust any process that they can't control. So what happens is when they get discomforted inside with their partner, okay, not knowing how to regulate that as a healthy adult, not a scared little kid, they act out in all these different ways. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So for those of us that are parents or for people out there that are planning on starting a family, I mean, obviously it's a huge impact on a child, the way that we communicate with our children and respect our partners. How, as a parent, do you become more aware of that impact and and how do we best serve the child, the children, the child? Here's a key, here's a key word. Ready? Curious. Be curious with your children. Talk to them, not at them. Ask them questions. How do you feel about this? What's going on with this? What do you think about this? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm going to give you a, a really quick story, if I can. 
And it was a story where my youngest son was pitching in a baseball game and he got rocked, he got hit, and he was so, so down on himself. And I walked into that dugout, right, saying to myself, what does my son need? Maybe I'll put on my therapist hat. Maybe I'll put on my, my pitching coach hat and help him with his follow-through. And here's what happened. I walked into the dugout with his friends, and he said to me, Dad, I need a hug. Uh-huh. That's all he needed. Oh, oh that's uh-huh. okay. Yeah, we didn't ha- I didn't have to be a therapist and tell him how he felt. I didn't have to help him with his follow-through. What did he need? A hug from his dad. What we all want in our lives, a hug. So many times parents try to fix, they try to tell them what they did, wrong, whatever. Put that in the garbage can for now. Pull it out later. When our child struggles, maybe because their heart is broken or they failed a test or they made an error in a baseball game, there's nothing more they want than a hug. That is what they need. That is what I needed from my father when he was never around. A hug. I'm going to tell you guys. Also because they're, you're so present. When you're having a hug, you're present. They they feel you there, like heart to heart. You get them. You get them. You get them. It's not about fixing anything. It's a hug. So, and, I and love all it. this we're talking about, yeah, and all this we're talking about today really makes a lot of sense to me. But I want to change a little the direction just a little bit here. Uh, sure. But I also want to talk about the whole emotion thing because I have a story. But um, so society tends to send messages to boys that they need to hide their emotions and that they can't be men if right. they feel feelings. Right. Now, this is something that tends to continue through to adulthood and it can create intimacy issues in a relationship. So this is where my example comes in. So I have a male friend who grew up in a household with a father who didn't show any emotion. And at school, he was made fun of because he was, he was a little different and, and learned quickly how to communicate in a more socially acceptable, I would say masculine way to avoid being picked on. Now he's in his late forties, but he's having trouble connecting with potential partners in, in a more intimate and meaningful way, but able to open up uh, with about his feelings when he gets drunk, right? When he has some drink. Of course. So, Alcohol makes is sense. mechanism. So my question to you, Tom, is, is how can men who are dealing with this type of situation uh, learn to express their feelings, and, and what can their partners do to help them with this? Okay, great question. Now, first of all, we have society messages that tell us men are wimps if they share their feelings. We have mm-hmm. parents that tell us, my father told me whenever I had any emotion, he would call me his little girl. Okay, what's the message? The message is you're, you're, you're a wimp if you share your feelings. We have to change that. It takes courage for men to, I want everybody to hear this, courage for men to share their feelings. Not a wimp, the opposite. So how do we change it? We have to understand the story we make up in our head. Okay, I ask my clients, I run my groups, what's the story you make up if you share your feelings? And they say the story is I'm a wimp. I'm not good enough. I'm this and that. Okay, let's blow up that story. Go to your wife. Tell your wife, honey, if I share my feelings with you, my story is I feel like I'm a wimp. I feel like I'm not good enough. I feel like I'm a, 
I'm a, I'm a crybaby. Share your story. Let your wife tell you if that story's true or not. And I don't have to tell anybody here that 99.9% of the time their wife goes, oh, my God, that's what I want you to do. I want you to sh- share your feelings with me. Mm-hmm. We've got to get through that story we make up. Because if we don't tell about our story that we're making up in our head, we will make that story a reality. We'll make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we have to get the story out so we realize that that story is absolutely uh, it, 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 it's baloney. Mm-hmm. We're talking about how childhood messages create intimacy issues in relationships on the Dating and Relationship Show. And when we come back, we're going to talk about betrayal and mending broken relationships. Stay with us. Now back to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellotta from singleinthecity.ca on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Tonight on the Dating and Relationship Show on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto, Joan Kelly Walker and I, Laura Bellotta, we're joined by Thomas Gagliano. He's an expert in family dynamic issues. And we are continuing our conversation on how childhood messages affect us as adults and particularly our relationships. Mm-hmm. So, Thomas, you do a lot of work helping people to mend broken relationships that have fallen apart. And, I mean, we all know how difficult that can be for everyone. Yep. How do you suggest we start working on that, even from, like, a personal level? I, I, the first question I ask couples is, do you want to work on this relationship? You know, many of us out there need to work on a relationship. But it's those that want to work on their relationship. It works if you work it. I've had couples that have had devastating situations that are probably closer today than more couples you know in this world. One thing they had was the willingness to want to take direction and work on their relationship. So if they want to, now I got them. So the one is explained with the next sentence of what can you do to work on this? Now, I'll help them with that. But I want to hear that they want to first. If I hear a couple that's really not in it, I tell them, and, and maybe this is a little bit tough, but I tell them, look, if you don't want to work on this, it's not going to work. Don't waste your money with me or your time with me. This is why I get a lot of um, emails from, from women who say, oh, you got to talk to my husband. You gotta, and I go, why isn't your husband emailing me? Why are you emailing me? And if the, the question is, well, You can help them. I heard you on your podcast and you can help them. No, if your husband wants to email me, that's fine. I'll help him. But in the meantime, I can help you. That hits a chord. I I just find men just have a hard time reaching out for help. They really do. I'm I'm sure that you see this often in your practice. And why is that? Is it the ego comes to play here? Why, Why do men have a hard time getting help or reaching out for help? This is why many times I'll tell the, the woman or the men, I mean, betrayals both ways, I'll say, get them my book. Because my book, The Problem Was Me, explains a little bit that, again, you're not a bad person that should be punished. You're a discouraged person that needs help. I try to b- bring a little empathy into the person that has done the infidelity or betrayal to know that they're not bad people. But when we, when we do sit down, and work on this, one of the things I talk about is 
how you could make your partner, the, the one that was betrayed, more important to you. Because what betrayal does is tell the other person that they're not important. They're not mm-hmm. pretty enough. They're not smart enough. They're not intelligent enough. They're not sexy enough. It's, it, it's so hurtful, betrayal. It goes beyond uh, normal marriage sessions uh, uh, in, in pain. In pain. I mean, it just is, is, it's devastating. So the person is left with these feelings that, am I not pretty enough? Maybe I'm not sexy enough or smart enough. So we have to talk about that piece because many times betrayal is escaping. It's not about that. But I've got to help clients understand that. It's about escaping into a fantasy world where you're not taking responsibility. You don't have to take, uh, 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 you're not talking about your conflict. You're not talking about all the things you're not regulating like a healthy adult. You're running away from it. So we segue into that after a certain amount of time. But in the very beginning, I got to know, do you want to work this relationship or not? Because people that don't want to work it, you know, saying I'm sorry it's two words. It doesn't mean much. But mm-hmm. showing you're sorry mm-hmm. by going to get professional help, by maybe going to 12-step programs, from really putting the time in to work on why you betrayed your partner, that's what love is. It's action. It's not two words. I'm sorry. Okay, so can we be a bit more specific here about betrayal? Because no matter what form it comes in, it can provide serious cracks in a relationship that's really hard to overcome. Like, let's call a spade a spade, especially when we don't know what to do. We don't know how to approach it. So many people who've been betrayed would feel the need to fix the person or, I don't know, fix the situation or whoever hurt them. So for someone who's been betrayed in some way, what steps do we need to take to heal ourselves from that betrayal? Excellent question. First thing is the person that's been betrayed needs to get help. They need to find their own support group. I love Al-Anon. I didn't cause it. I can't cure it and I can't control it or a therapist to work out the feelings you have with the betrayal. So they need their own program. Okay, number one. Number two, I put a set of actions down. What is the person that did the betrayal willing to do? You're willing to get therapy once a week, go to 12-step programs. What is the actions you're going to take to make that other person feel like they're important? That's what I do too. And I help the one that's been betrayed understand that it wasn't because they weren't pretty enough, sexy enough, young enough. It was because the other person had issues. Now, let's say we're working on this betrayal and both parties agree to work on what I just told you they need to work on. Eventually, if that, and I run my groups, all my groups are about this. And if they stay sober for a while and they're working on themselves, now it becomes marriage sessions. Now it's about what can I do to make this relationship better from the both ends, both ends. There's always things anybody can do to make their relationship better. Maybe the person betrayed is controlling the other person to the point that they feel suffocated. What could you do to work on that? So we get to really just general marriage sessions if the person for a year has really worked on themselves and stopped the acting out behaviors they have. But in the beginning, I want both people to get help, professional help, or at least go to 12-step Al-Anon meetings, which is really codependency anonymous, to work on themselves as well. 
And just quickly, we probably have about a minute left before we have to take a break. But the ones being betrayed, um, I mean, they, I mean, they need to speak to other like-minded people. That's the whole idea around these group sessions, right? Absolutely. To be, Absolutely. To be around people that support you, that get you. I think you called them witnesses. Um, you know that you're in a non-judgmental space, like a safe zone. Can you talk about that a bit? Witnesses are those people that know your truth, that you're not holding any secrets from. They know what you've been through. Now, many times people don't want to talk about their struggles. They don't want to talk about their, their infidelity. But you know what? Witnesses are those that know your truth from the betrayer and from the one being betrayed. That's what my groups are about. Witnesses talking about their struggles with other people that can share their experience, strength, and hope with. What worked? What didn't work? Listen, it's kind of like, you know, when I found out my husband betrayed me, I wanted to be his detective, and I wanted to see everything he did online, and I wanted to know who he spoke to. What I want. Did that help you? Not really. It didn't help me because if he was going to act out again, he was going to act out again. But again, it's talking about other people's experiences with this. What has worked for them? What hasn't worked for them? So I love your question. Witnesses are huge for both parties, the betrayer and the betrayee. And when we come back, Thomas needs to take a break. And Joan, uh, we're going to talk about the things you need to be taken when it comes to dealing with addiction. We'll be back. Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellotta from singleinthecity.ca on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. And you're back. You're tuned in to the Dating and Relationship Show. This is Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I'm your host, Laura Bellotta from singleinthecity.ca with my friend, TV personality and philanthropist, Joan Kelly Walker. Hello. And tonight we're talking. Hi, and tonight we're talking to Thomas Gagliano. He is an expert in family dynamic issues, and we are continuing our conversation on how childhood messages affect us as adults, and particularly in our relationships. I think Joan, you have a story to tell us. Yeah, well, a story and a question. You know, we're talking about infidelity and the struggles, and you know, how do you forgive the other person? How do you get to that place? And this happened years and years and years ago. But I was dating this guy who obviously had his own issues. Now that I look back on it, but I didn't know that at the time. And you know, there was infidelity, and it was like, okay, I'll forgive you. And then it happened again and again. And each time, it sort of, you know, he would come with the big "I'm sorry." And then it became a smaller, I'm sorry. And then after a while, there wasn't even really an I'm sorry. And like, but I, like, I let it go too long. How, like, what are the, the points when you stop the madness and, and say, okay, this is not going to change. And this person needs to work on themselves before they can be with me. Like, how do you recognize those signs? I think that's about taking an inventory about red flags, getting good with your red flags, getting good with what makes you happy, what makes you sad. I'm sure there was a couple of red flags you had on the way that said, "Mm, this isn't really going to work. So when we see our partner taking actions to fix that, if that person you were dating started to go to therapy, started to go to 12-step programs, that's an action that I want to work on this. Anybody that commits this infidelity, if they're doing it in addictive ways, which I'm sure he was, 
Mm-hmm. Um, if they're not taking actions to fix look, I know one thing about. He was taking this. some actions, but I think it was just so deep. I just, I was really young and I just didn't understand it. And it was yeah. so complicated. There was no, like the red flags weren't like hitting me over the head, big enough red flags. Cause I, I couldn't. Exactly. Yeah. I had never experienced yeah. that before. Yeah. And I, you know, you know, people have to really understand what addiction truly is. Addiction is more powerful than the person. You know, many people out there that are addicts, they love their family. They love their kids, but they think they're in control of their addiction. And in reality is the addiction's always in control of them. That's why the cemeteries filled with people that thought they were in control of their addiction, whether it's gambling, whatever it is, that's really the power of addiction. So when the person really makes it, very important that they fix that brokenness inside and take those actions. And those actions are not small actions. They're big actions. They have to switch priorities on their life. They have to go from my priority now is not so much work and other things. It's to fix what's broken in me. I have many clients that their priorities are not what they should be. Work comes first, this comes first, that comes first. If you are an addict, you better make your sobriety your priority. And if you don't, anything under that is going to be destroyed. Yeah, I want to. I want to get to that. I want to get to talking about addictions. But before that, just because because we're on that this subject right now, talking about sex addiction. So it. Is there really such a thing as sex addiction? Because single men, I never hear single men complain about being a sex addict. If you you really think about it, men, oh, you know, a single man comes to you, I I, I want too much sex. It's an issue. You never hear that. It only becomes an issue once they're in a relationship and they've been caught. Once you get caught, I blame it on sexual addiction. I'm addicted to sex. It's a problem. Listen, But when you're single, you don't have that issue. Not only do I think it's an addiction, but I think it's the biggest addiction we have today. And let me show you how I can prove that. Please. Online pornography makes more money than anything. Sports teams, professional teams, anything. There's got to be a few people listening to online porn. Now. Now, hmm. when, you're, when you're addicted to pornography and you're taking time away from your wife, your children, when you're giving your wife that she's not pretty enough, or husband, it's both. I have both clients, not pretty enough, not sexy enough, that these images give be more than you can, that you're not with your children. Because don't think for a minute, porn is, you go on there for 20 minutes. Yeah, it starts that way. But like all addictions, it's progressive. So the 20 minutes becomes four hours. I know this to be true. I'm in the field. Ooh, four and hours. All of a sudden, yeah, because we, we after it like a drink. An alcoholic in the beginning has two drinks of beer, and five years later, he's got to have two quarts of scotch. Just like porn. In the beginning, I'm going on for a little bit of time, and now I'm going on for two hours, three hours at a time. What am I taking away from my family now? It's an addiction. It, it, in every way, it proves it's an addiction. And I'll give you another way. Addiction, addiction, the three areas where you cross the line is, one, I'm in trouble with the law, DWIs, pornography or whatever. Number two, I'm in trouble with employment. I'm on sites I shouldn't be on in work. They found out and I got fired. I can't tell you how many people come to me because of that. 
Number three, I have problems with my family because I'm not around. I'm upstairs in my room with the door shut. I'm on porn too much. So I'm having family issues, number three. If you cross any of those lines, it's an addiction. And when people say that this isn't an addiction, I ask them, what's your definition of addiction? Because it really sounds like an addiction to me. <laughs> and when someone reaches, you know, when someone reaches that point, like what steps can they take for recovery? Mm-hmm. The only thing the that makes addicts, yeah, the only thing that makes addicts work, find the willingness to work on themselves is consequences. I'm going to lose something I have, maybe my wife and family, or not gain something I want. That's what does it. All the lectures and talking and enabling in the world is not going to get an addict to work on themselves. That's enabling. Okay? They need consequences. And consequences are, if you don't get help for this, I'm not going to stay in this relationship. You choose porn over me, I'm not going to stay in this relationship. That's the only thing that gets people to get help is consequences. Sorry to say that, but you know what? When my wife and kids left, that's what got me to get help. So how do you put the consequences on yourself if you're trying to uh, self-recover, if that's a word? That's when you need your own support group, which I said earlier, everybody should have their own support group. They should have their own therapist. They, your support group and therapist empower you to do things you can't do on your own. They empower you to have that uncomfortable conversation. You know what I tell my groups all the time? The uncomfortable conversations is the key to healthiness, growth, and intimacy. The uncomfortable ones, the ones we don't want to have. And to be able to say, if you don't get help, I'm out of here. I can't do this anymore. Is very uncomfortable, very painful, but very much needed. That's what will get somebody to find the willingness, if they want to. Now, not all the time, the willingness to get help. Thomas Gagliano, thank you so much for joining Joan and I tonight. Thomas Gagliano and the author of The Problem Was Me. How can people learn about more about your book and learn more about you? Where can they reach you? Thank you. You could go to my website, theproblemwasme.com. For some reason, my wife loved the title of this book. I can't understand it yet, but she loved the title of The Problem Was Me. Anyway, you can go on my website, theproblemwasme.com. You can hear all my podcasts anywhere you listen to podcasts on The Problem Was Me. I also have digital products on there. If you want to buy intimacy uh, digital products or, or parenting, whatever, have fun. I have a lot of interviews on there and stuff, so enjoy. Thank you. Joan, where can people find you? I am at joankellywalker.com. And Joan Kelly Walker official on Instagram. And I am official Laura Bellotta on Instagram. You can follow us, the Dating and Relationship Show on Instagram or singleinthecity.ca. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Ciao.